Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Friday, it's Thursday morning actually, and I'm going to do this earlier while I can, especially for the overseas people who keep writing to me. Um, we'll talk about the Parsha today's podcast. Parsha concert is being sponsored. Happy to say by uh, what they call the Bancroft Minion. Chaim <laughs> Amos uh, and I'll put it together. Uh, you know, in Baltimore, I'm, I know where you guys are. We still have a lot of outdoor minions in addition to the shoals. My show, for example, is open. They have, you know, services all the time. But there's still plenty of people who maintain the outdoor minions, which is a good thing. First of all, the outdoor minion is better in terms of health. And second of all, uh, it reduces the number of people pressing on the room. Knows that it, it, it facilitates social distancing in the shoals. We're now in a funny matzo that a shoal wants the lesser people the better. <laughs> Usually, they want more people to come down with them, but not in the current corona um, shagas. You actually want the opposite, which is kind of funny. And uh, you know, everything has its um, everything has its time. This is gonna be a problem for me coming Tishavov. I'll send out a podcast about that later on for those that are interested. Usually in petition of my show is mobbed or wherever we go because I always do the kinos at great length, you know, with all the history. Uh, the way it's being planned this year is, because of the new normal, what I'm planning to do is daven in my show like 8 o'clock, chakras, and then when chakras is over, I'm going to go home, everybody's going to go home, and we do all the keynotes on the Zoom. That's the new way. And there are two other shoals that will be joining in on the Zoom. Uh, Rabbi Motsen, Shul, Rabbi Shaffers. So we'll have at least three shoals uh, participating, and I'll be doing all the keynotes. Not all, I do some of them, you know. That's what we do every year. Fifteen, something like that. Uh, representative uh, keynotes, in my opinion. Uh, between nine and one, something, something along those lines. I don't know yet exactly, but we do it by Zoom because you can't have people packed together and show for a long time. Uh, it's unhealthy now, and who can speak at length with a mask on? You know, and, and if you're in show, you gotta have a mask, including myself. But if we do it by the Zoom, it'll be a different messias. Those of you who are out there, wherever you are, if by any chance you're interested in um, tuning in. On Tishva morning, when we do the keynotes, those you want participating in the Zoom, I would, I don't know how they're going to do it exactly, but it's not a rocket science anymore. But I would um, say, best thing to do is send an email telling us you want to do it, and then we'll add your name on the list. And those will send you the Zoom information. The best place to send an email for this purpose is is my other email to my uh, History Foundation, Binu. So it's binujhistory at gmail.com. Again, it's B-N-I-U-J, history, one word, B-I-B-I-N-U, B-I-N-U-J, history, at gmail. Uh, that's if you're interested in that. But anyway, the 
that I said, uh, today's podcast is being sponsored by one of the uh, outdoor minions. And specifically, I want to thank David Daniels and Nachi Schifrin and Doe Frankel, my friend, and Nassano Jacobitz and Chaim Abramson for putting it together. As you know, I always appreciate all the sponsors. Now, without any further ado, we get to the one of the more difficult uh, Parsha's books. The whole Dwarm is difficult, but the, the Parsha Dwarm is particularly difficult, especially if the word Dvarim means history. Ela Dvarim Shadibi Moshe, the whole Parsha is about history. These aren't the words Moses spoke. I mean, I know they're words, but I'm saying not the words that Moses spoke to the people. It's the history, because he's about to die, and it's a dying speech, as we all know. And the generation he's speaking to are the young young guys. The old ones have all died out by now. By tradition, this is done a month or so, five weeks before he died. So by then, the whole old generation is gone. Um, just about. He's dealing with the young guys. And they do not necessarily know the history, or at least let's put it this way, they don't know the official version of history. Now, uh, you know, families lie. <laughs> if, who is your Bubby? Who is your Zadio? Oh, is a big Sonic. Yeah, but when you find... <laughs> If you do a little bit of uh, research, you might not find that necessarily be the truth. This is basic battle between history and memory. And so you have a whole generation that died out in the desert, uh, as we know. Who knows what they told their kids and their grandchildren? You know what I mean? You know, who knows what they did? They say it's a curse of Moses. I don't know. You and I have been brainwashed. We've been, you know, learning the Chumash forever. So we have the official version, which is the old died, because Hashem said... Going to perish because of the sin of Meraglim, which of course is the original Tishabov. It's very no You always do Dvarim week before Tishabov, correct? That's how the calendar is organized. You always do Dvarim the week before Tishabov because you know, that thing, you have Echo in there, right? You have Echo in there. So um, it's not simply because, you know, Echo is going to be read that week, so you do the tune of Echo, but in a deeper sense, of course, is because the story you're describing in a very rapid detail is uh, the story of Mraglam in a broad way. Now, I know the Mraglam was back in my midbar, but here it's described very vividly. And here Moshe Rabbeinu gives his famous declaration, uh, that I am not going to make it into Israel because of the sin of Mraglam. Right? It is very unclear why exactly Moshe was not permitted to enter the land. Uh, there are different uh, traditions and statements. And this is one of them. You know, so one is he didn't hit the rock. That's one. Here's another one. Because he didn't stop the rock. You know what I'm God was angry at me. Because he gamatolo sabashama. Instead, Yoshua Benun, Oso Yechazek, you know, like that. Now, um, in a broad sense, the. Uh, Whole book. Uh, pretty, I'm going to concentrate on the parsha Dvarim. Very complicated, very confusing. I, at least to me. And, um, but one thing is clear. Moshe is telling the younger generation, "I'm, I'm not. You're going to go very soon into Israel." This speech was said just before he died, so it means after they defeat. So we know what that means. It's in the 40th year, of course, and they just finished wiping out Sichon and Og, and dispossessing that territory what you and I call the Avar Yardin, the land that's going to be occupied by the two and a half tribes. And now Moshe is speaking to them, but Eretz HaTorah says, it's going to be the Torah. 
Now, what does it mean, Bavar Torah? It's not what you usually think, like Bir Alocha. Moshe does not say, let's sit down and talk about Choshet Mishpat, or something like that. That's the way you would imagine. Ho Moshe bears the Torah Zosli more would mean, and then he got into, into the nitty-gritty of halachic uh, minutia. That's a very yeshivish approach. But in point of fact, that's not what happens at all. Instead, Moses gives the history, his version of the history. And God says, include this in the Chumash. It's very interesting. Now, even beyond that, the whole nature of the Book of Dvarim, and I'm sure I must have spoken about this in the past, and you've heard this before also, is different because the other four books are not written by Moses. This one says it is. But, you know, by the time you work out all the Mepharshim, I'm talking about the firm ones, talking about the Mepharshim, so usually the approach is something along the following lines. Moshe composed these words, but God was the editor. God said actually what to write in. And if you've ever been involved in writing and editing, and I've been both, used to work for art schools there in the Gemara. So there were times I was a writer and I was edited by others. At the time, the other way around. Somebody else wrote something, the editor gets in. The editor is always going to be some kind of a rapist. You understand? That's the nature of the game. Editing is kind of a rape, you know? So, um, uh, in this case, you know, the final product you see is from the editor. Correct? The final product you see is from the editor. I mean, not, not to take away from the writer, but what you see in the end is the editor. Somebody today publishes a book, especially with a real publishing company. Well, give me an editor, and whatever you wrote, by the time they finish, it may or it may not look exactly like what you wrote. It may be changed 10%, maybe changed 90%. That's the business. So, the way we understand it generally, at least the way I understand that we understand it is, Moses is the author, and God is the editor. You see? And so by the time you finish, Hashem says, these are the Elah Dvarim, write the word Elah, write the word Dvarim, share Dibir motion, and so on and so forth. But, from the very beginning, Ho Moshe Bar Torah he's giving a historical account, because he's trying to explain how we got where we are, and why I, Moshe, am not going to go into Israel. It's not because, you know, I was sinful or something like that. It's because of your fault, because of Meraglim. The reason I mention this, this is a deep subject, and the truth of the matter is, take a very long time to do this right now. I don't want to spend a long time on a podcast. But let me say this. Um, at the very beginning of the book, he says, read, read the words that you're familiar with, but leave Rashi out. These are the words that Moses spoke to Israel. Okay, I know where that is. You know also. He did it after he killed Sichanarok. So he's more or less in the middle of the Jordan Valley, on the other side. Mosuf, opposite the Amsuf. Wait a minute. Opposite the Amsuf, that's somewhere else. I mean, Tofel is all the way in the south of, uh, at the bottom of the Dead Sea. Chatzeros and Dizahov. Basically, what he's saying is like this. This is the speech that Moshe delivered in New York, in Chicago, in San Francisco, in Saskatchewan, in Atlanta, St. Louis, and Houston. So he said, well, make up your... <laughs> because the place is not next to each other. Now, the average person doesn't know this. And so you say, Mulsup, in Loma Chatzma, in ways of triangulating. Looks like, say, it was in Baltimore, near Washington, south of Pennsylvania. You know, they're all describing the same place, correct? Tel Aviv, which is north of this and south of this and east of that and west of that. That's actually not what's going on over here. They're distinct places, even if we don't have clarity exactly today on um, where all these places are, and we, and we do not. And uh, this is the time to whip out your Bible map 
not that they're that good, but at least it's a start. And you end up, if you take this parsha seriously, and I'm talking about the plain level, parsha level, then um, it's it's a lot. It requires a lot of work. It's interesting. It requires a lot of work. So I'll tell you what I mean. This raises the question: What is the shot in the pasuk that these are the words Moshe spoke here, there, 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 and there? Now, Rashi famously gives it what we call a midrashic interpretation, right? In other words, they're not places. There's, there's a Musr speech that Moshe gave Musr for things that happen in different places. So basically, I'm standing in New York, and I'm saying, I'm giving you Musr because of the sin that you committed in St. Louis. I'm giving you Musr also because of the sin you committed in Detroit. I'm giving you Musr because of the sin you committed in Atlanta and another sin in, in, um, in Houston. So I'm standing in one place, and so are you. I'm just recalling bad things you did in different locations, right? When you're in this place, you ate Trafa, in that place, you're Michal Shabbos, in the third place, you're Gilaraj, that kind of thing. So that's what's called a Midrashic interpretation. Um, and the reason Rashi gives that is because of what I just said. Because at the Pashat level, it doesn't make any sense. If one place is here, one place is far away, and one place is somewhere else, then how do you say the Yarn is the same thing as the Mulsuf, which sounds at least like I was at the Red Sea or something like that. Now, I know there are different ways. Believe me, I am aware that different Mepharshim will try to, uh, you know, tra- tra- give trivial translations because they're attempting to deal with the problem that I just raised. Okay? Now, some say, I think it's uh, the Benezer, Bechorsha, one of those types. I think some say, uh, if you take a Pashim shot, it's very, very interesting. This is a collection of speeches. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's not, it's not a speech that Moshe gave in one place. It's a collection of speeches. I think I saw this. What is it? If you look like an Ari Kaplan or something like that, let me get the Chumshamon. Here's the Steinzels one, the new one uh, that I like. I'm coming to like. And what does he say over here? Um, Moses repeated here very. Uh, the names allude to certain events. Moshe didn't say, no, that's Rashi. Um, these places serve to pinpoint the precise locations where Moshe spoke. Those locations. Notice, let's put it this way. It's an edited collection of speeches. What you see over here, the speech of Moshe, what you and I call the Parsha of, Amid, of um, Dvarim, the Parsha of Eschanan, the Parsha of, of Ekev Re'eh, and so on and so forth, because I think Dvarim, Eschanan, Ekev Re'eh is a continual speech. They're, they're, they're edited. They're stitched together. It's like the collected speech, speeches of Moses. And they're woven together the way an editor does. And part of it is a speech he gave by the Meraglim, and part of it is a speech he gave by here, and part of the speech he gave there, something along those lines. That's a very fascinating way of looking at it. It's a very push-up shot way of looking at it. In which case, God's role as the editor is really uh, uh, more powerful. If you say it's a single speech by Moshe, then what you say is Hashem went through the words and dictated them. Now, this is the formal interpretation. Dictated them, word for word. Maybe it was identical with Moshe's there. Probably he cut and pasted, you know, leave this out, leave this in. But if you say it's a collection of speeches, then the editor really is doing the work. Because then you're really deciding what goes in, where, where, and what you leave out. And uh, that would be an explanation of a lot of the differences that we're all familiar with when you read Dvarim, which are not the same as you find elsewhere in the Chumash. Just off the top of my head, Moshe says today, as I said before, that, um, you know, uh, I'm not going into Israel because of what you guys did to me. Because of the I mean. Don't talk about hitting the rock. 
So it could be that, uh, you know, Moshe really says because they hit the rock, and Hashem said, no, it's because of Maraglam or something like that. You know, that's the way he wrote it out. The editing role becomes very, very interesting over here. Understand well, the entire Chumash is a kind of edited work because it's never a simple, transparent uh, reflection of the events for a whole bunch of reasons I mentioned before. Again, just off the top of my head, when it says Moshe spoke to Paro and said this and Paro said that, first of all, they didn't speak in Hebrew. So God is telling you over in Hebrew, right off the bat, you're changing the words. Second of all, who says that the conversations were as small and as stilted as you find in the Chumash? Let my people go. No, I will not let your people go. That's the whole conversation? Probably. They shot the bull, they did this and that, and the other way someone talks to a king. There's more to it than that. Or, you know, the the, the Khartoumim say, Those are the exact words he used. Maybe they had a whole long conversation, which can be boiled down to, you know, I'm reminded, again, off the top of my hat, you know, the famous, if you're, if you're my age, you'll remember when um, New York had issues, New York City couldn't pay their bills back in the 1970s, and they wanted President Ford, the federal government should bail it out, and he said no, and there's a famous uh, newspaper headline, Ford to New York drop dead. But he didn't use those words, that's a journalist trying to say, after all the words put together, boiled down to drop dead. So that's what I'm talking about when I say the editing, something of a radical editing. And they could mention, this would explain, in a very interesting way, the differences, I said before, do you find in Dvorim, do you find elsewhere? Sometimes language of halachas, sometimes language of the accounts. Uh, but what's really interesting to me is um, the geography and the lack of a clear explanation of the missing 38 years. Because Moshe is trying to explain to the younger generation why we're not in Israel yet. We left 40 years ago. And he's trying to, like I say, tell him his version, the official version. Don't believe your parents when they say it was because of this or because of that. It's because they sinned at the Mraglam. You know, let's, let's be clear about that. And he says those words very clearly in the Swiss Parsha. And he goes on to say that um, we marched to Kaddish Barnea and then from there I sent out the Mraglam. And then Kaddish Barnea appears later on. In other words, I just noticed this town, this place called Kaddish Barnea, it's kind of prominent in the Parsha Dvarm. And that's where he sent the spies from. Now, as I understand it, the, the, the location of Kaddish Barnea is pretty much uh, ended in Negev, around the place they call in Israel Nitzana. That was a big battle in the 48-49 war. Uh, Al-Oja, the Arabs called it. It's a famous, if you know your Israeli history, it's one of the big victories the Israeli army had from the Egyptian army back in Yagel Yadin's time. They found the road, they surprised the Egyptian garrison in, in Al-Oja, and they captured, and that apparently was a road that that was a, a natural road that leads right through the Sinai and the Negev. As far as I'm aware, right around there is where Kadesh Barnea was. I think many say that. And so, here's the thing. Uh, it says in the beginning of Parshish Sub Varim, you know, right? After it says he spoke to them, 
which is a pasuk that makes no sense. I repeat, in other words, there's no, there's no verb. What? That's where Moshe gave the speech? That's not true. He didn't give the speech 11 days from Harkhorev. He gave the speech up in the Avery Yarden, you know, where they were. And again, Rashi will give Midrashic interpretation, but what's the plain shot? These are hard to, believe me, the Bible critics go crazy over this verse. The, um, uh, what do you call what, what is the Bshad? But the plain meaning, it's not possible to give a plain meaning, but straightforward meaning sounds like, look guys, um, it took 11 days to get from Harsinam to Kodesh Barnea. That's very interesting, because um, if Kodesh Barnea is where I told you, it's on the Israeli-Egyptian border, I would say roughly halfway between the Gaza Strip and Eilat. Right? Again, the it's it, it's on the Israeli-Egyptian border. Something like halfway between um, Eilat and, uh, and the Gaza Strip. You know what that is. So, um, and you know, if it's not here, it's nearby. No lot of business. That gets very interesting. Because... There's some places where it indicates that the Jews were 38 years in that place. Um, and this week's parsha is kind of confusing. You have to follow it back and forth. And I invite you to do that this Shabbos. If, you want to pull, if you're that type to pull out the maps and try to make sense of the Pesukim. But more or less, we were at Har Sinai. We marched to Kaddish Barnea, which is, as you know, therefore close to Israel. If it's what I just described, then it's in the... Let me put it this way: the western part of the Negev Desert, on the border between the, the Sinai and Israel, on the current state of Israel, uh, it's not part of Eretz Israel because Eretz Israel is from Don to Beersheba. But nevertheless, that's where the Jews were going to go. And then I'm asking you: how far is it to march from what I just described, from Nitzana north to Beersheba and north of that, and you're in the heart of Israel all, all, all of a sudden? Not far, okay? Not far. Now. Um, it's rocky, you know what I mean? In other words, as if you look at a topography map, and I'm holding in front of me, I always like these topography maps, you see it's very rocky, it's not, it's not push it at all, okay? But, um, but you're not far, you're not far. And um, it's not very far away from uh, Beersheba, let's put it that way. It's not, not close, but it's not very far away. But I'm talking stupid. I'm talking about, you know, as the crow flies. When you have to leave people over mountains and bad gullies and this kind of thing, that's not so much at all. And that's what you have over here. Now, what happened? They send the spies. The spies come back. They mess everything up. That's the famous original Tishabov. Right? And, and, and then what happens? Then what happens? So, it's not 100% clear, but um, they spent 38 years there. Um, now, I might be wrong. And if you go by the Seder Olam, which is the classic work of the uh, Chazal. Yeah, that's the official chronology. They say that it is 13 years is half and half, 19 and 19. Right? 19 and 19. Uh, here it is. One second. It's Yom HaShor Lachnu Mikodesh Barneach Then this week's Parsha Moshe says it was 38 years HaShor Lachnu Mikodesh Barneach Anachal 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 from point A to point B. And um, 
Nachozeret is equal to the bottom of the of, of the Dead Sea, right? So I think everybody has a general idea of the map. You know, seriously, if you're listening to this podcast, a general idea. And so you're talking about not that far away. You went from Kodesh Barnea, and um, if you know, I really it it would make such a difference if you took the trouble. You know what I did? Get a topography map. If you go online, I'll just make a recommendation. There's a thing called Touch Israel, uh, www.touch-israel.com. And uh, you go online, and, and you can buy a topography map of the state of Israel or the biblical Israel. And if you're in these, if you're the type of person interested in Chumash, get one, either one or both. Not that expensive. Many, many, many years ago, I once went with my kids to, um, what's it called, the Machte Shemel, you know, the Rimon Crater. And the guy was walking around one of these. I said, where'd you get this from? He says, I got it on the internet, the, the tour guide. Uh, and you'll see the difficulties in, in traversing, especially with a large number of people, men and women, and old and young. And you have to go through cuts in the mountains. You, you understand? What's called Derecho Arava, which would mean there's a certain road, if you want to call it a road, that would uh, go from Kaddish Barnea to more or less the Dead Sea, and you get to the very bottom of the Dead Sea, and you skirt it, and you go up the Jordan side, and pretty soon you're in Nachlazerid. Okay, so that's where it is. So it's not that far, but he says it took 38 years to get there. Moshe Armin is trying to explain to the people why we're still here. Right? How come we didn't get to Israel long ago? And the way the Chazal explained it is, Yotes Shana HaYechos Unumatorofen, Yotes Shana Yashua B'Kadosh Barnea. That the 38 years divided in two halves. 19 years. 19 years of wandering around. this, You know, like you say in Masai. And another 19 years, they weren't moving. So, um, uh, so let's put it this way. One way of understanding is they stayed in that place, Kodesh Barnea, for 38 years. The other one is, they, they half the time they stayed there, the other half the time they wandered around at God's command. In other words, they just followed wherever the Ara, the, the Ananim uh, led them, you know. So, that is an interesting situation. Uh, here are the Jews, three million people are in Al-Ajah, are in uh, Nitzana area, um, really close by to Israel. Mom is close by. Uh, I, I mean, I can see it being across the Midbar Parn, and you're not too far away from Beersheba at all, let alone from Gaza. Um, but they don't go. They're stuck there. And you can already understand the Mapilim, because, you know the story, when Moshe said we can't go to Mapilim, he said, let's do it. And uh, they got killed, but they said it's not far away. So it's a very strange uh, Gullus, shall we say. The Jewish people are 38 years in Gullus, at the border of Israel, so to speak. You know what I mean? Re- nearby. It's not like the current Gullus, you know, Jews went to Europe and America and uh, Africa and who knows where, right? Far away. You can, you know, really see Israel from where you are. That puts a very interesting spin from the aesthetic point of view. This whole generation that's going to die in the desert, over the horizon they can see the promised land. But they screwed up. And what you end up with is a parallel version of the, of the Luchos. Because as you know, there are two sets of luchos. They made the first one and then they broke them and then they had to make the second one. And the second one are inferior to the first. Here also, 
there are two attempts to go into Israel. One is the time Raglam, if they hadn't screwed up. Then the other one isn't. The other one's uh, 38 years later. The first time, and there are more fortunate to say this, David Pardo and others, there's those who, who say this. Had, had they gone in, um, the Edomites would not have stood in their way. Which means, they could have gone straight up the Negev Desert, which was Edom, uh, traversed there, and all of a sudden showed up at Beersheba and went to Beersheba. So the Edomites would have said, you know, this pays money or whatever, and we'll go there. And uh, they wouldn't have had to skirt the Dead Sea and go up the uh, Avery Island side. They were going straight in. There are Mepharshim that say this. And it's the same idea of saying the first Luchos were of superior uh, uh, quality. The second Luchos were still good, but they weren't as good as the first because you carve them out. And then I got all right on them. Which means the first time God carved them out. The same way here. You could have gone to Israel easy. What I mean is you go straight up to Negev. Really, they were not far away. Instead, they had to go this roundabout route. And I repeat, if you don't have a topography map, I really uh, urge you, if you want to have a, a better understanding of Chumash, uh, to get one of these topography maps. Because Israel has a nutty and very fascinating topography. And if you look at it, you'll see that the entire Jordan Valley... Uh, including the Dead Sea, is like a cut, a deep cut in between a whole one continuous mountain range, which is therefore cut into two mountain ranges. And when the Bnei Yisrael, for example, go up the Avayarin from the bottom of the Dead Sea, right? They go, they go up the other side from the literally from the bottom of the Red Sea. They cross from Kadesh Barnea to uh, Nachalzerd, which means they go through the middle of the Negev. I think many of you know about the Malayak Ravim in Israel, you know, the Scorpion Pass. It's all near... In other words, they went near the, the Ramon Crater, and uh, they go up the, uh, the you know, that, that whole site, so on and so forth. And it's a terrible topography. In other words, if you hug the Dead Sea and you hug the Jordan, then you never have to go to your right and up into the hills. But if you do... The uh, Moabites and the Ammonites and all these guys are high above you. And when Sichon and Mog, Og went, went to fight them, you have to understand that Sichon and Og are high up and they're charging down at the Jews. You understand? Who are hugging, was strung out. You know, it's, it's, it's like a dream of a military guy. Strung out with three million people, I don't know how long, and Sichon and Og can just attack them at the narrow base of the Jordan Valley and wipe him out. It's just that Moshe did the opposite. So that means in the campaign of Sichon and Og, Moshe led the Jews in the following. You are in the valley and you have to go up and fight your way and conquer the whole area around them and wipe them out. And so this whole idea of Gilad and Ramos Gilad and the uh, Cheshbon area means you're, you're atta- it's hard to do. It's attacking in the reverse direction. So this comes out very interesting. And I hope you're following what I'm saying. I realize you don't have a map, but that's my point. It, you can't know anything about Pasha Dvarim unless you get a map, which is why most of us are bored when we get to Pasha Dvarim, <laughs> because you read a lot of things about Moshe Rabbeinu and all the rest of them. You say, I don't know exactly what he's talking about. Kodesh Barnea, this year, that year. 
But when you try to unpack it and make sense out of it, it really comes out very interesting, at least to me. Right? It comes out interesting. And as I said before, Moshe is trying to give an account of why he's not making it to Israel. And um, as I said, he describes that they're stuck for 38 years. And then after 38 years, they were told to march. And when they march, of course, they say, like the second Lucas, this time it's not going to be easy as the first time. Had you gone, the, the implication is, had you gone in the first time, you would have gone straight up. Because you're going the second time, so you have one obstacle after another. And God tells them, as in this week's parsha, don't mess with Moab. No, don't go up that way. Don't mess with Moab. Don't mess with Ammon. Don't go up that way. And you find, over and over again, a very interesting political statement on the part of God, which is, don't take away the land of Edom. I assigned this to Edom. Don't take away the land of Moab. I assigned it. And as you know, biblical Israel is bordered in the... Uh, one side is the Mediterranean, but the other side in the um, in the east, biblical Israel is bordered by uh, Edom, Ammon, and Moab, meaning our cousins, correct? Edom is from Esau, and Ammon and Moab is from Lot. Now, these nations, first of all, are cousins of the Jews, but second of all, are um, uh, enemies of the Jews, but they come from Avram, you know what I mean? In other words, but they have rights to be in their land. And one of the interesting things that you see in Dvarim, always struck me, is that God is telling the Jews, I, Hashem, am directing you to leave Egypt and go and conquer a land. You might say, why well, should you go conquer somebody else's land? That's not fair. That's very much a modern approach. Don't bother the Palestinians. And um, Hashem says like this, I want you to know, everybody that you're going to is themselves a conqueror. Right? The Gaza Strip was dispossessed by the Kaftarim Ayotimi Kaftor, and other groups are dispossessed there. Esau dispossessed the people that was there. Amon and Moab obviously did that to the people that was there, because there were people living in the territory of Amon and Moab before Amon and Moab existed, right? Before they existed. Uh, you remember the, the, the wars of Kedar Omer took place on what we call the Avayarin, if you look at a map. There were people there. And um, then Ammon and Moab and these other guys came and took everything over. So, basically, you Jews are just the newest guys on the block. Now, why Hashem did it that way, I don't know. But, that, there were, to use the modern terminology, they're indigenous peoples. And these indigenous peoples were wiped out and dispossessed. Now, in modern liberal thought, it's the ultimate crime. Uh... In the Bible, that's what God commanded. I'll say it again. That's that's the command of God. That uh, I want the, the Middle East, this part of Israel area, Israel, Jordan, Palestine area, used to be inhabited by a set of people, A. And now I'm directing, Hashem says, that the locals should be dispossessed by others. And um, each one has their own area. Moab is assigned the Moab area, Ammon is assigned the Ammon area, Edom is assigned the Edom area. To you Jews, if you're taking over the Kanani Mari Prizibusi, you know, you're simply doing what everybody else did. This is very interesting because today, for example, you have the Arab Israeli conflict. And people say, take away the land from the Arabs. Well, the Arabs took away from the people before them. As you know. The Middle East is um, 
is replete with this. And uh, now the Jews say, oh, yes, it was in ancient times it was ours. But the Jews have to admit that uh, it was the Canaanites before them. As a matter of fact, one of the things the Palestinians do is claim to be the Canaanites, which, of course, they do for political reasons, they're not the Canaanites. Uh, the whole Arab world was conquered by the Islam, by the sword, by force, right? And uh, the Christians spread everything by force. And so we live in a funny world. Uh, people speak about justice and all that, but they always mean it's like it's justice once you admit my claim. In other words, I came, wiped out a country, and I set it up. Now it's a country. Now I want recognition and justice. Uh, America's like that. In fact, pretty much every country—pretty much every country's like that. I'm not going to go through the whole world line by line, but a lot of it, including in China, right? You think all the Chinese are the same? There was Group A, which wiped out Group B and dispossessed them. If you—it's it's just funny that what I'm describing is not an aberration, but sort of a rule that in the course of history. One group dispossesses the others. It's a, it's just interesting, you know. We don't have people that have been there since Briasa Olam. Everybody's constantly changing and moving. And they're sticking like this um, in the in the prophets. Understand? They'll take the thrones and turn them upside down, and I move people all over the place. And uh, I can only, you know, the simplistic explanation of that is like your first Rashi in the Chumash. Uh, nobody has rights. I shall give things out and take them away. Right? It's a way of remembering God runs the world. Otherwise, you say like this, God doesn't run the world. I run the world. Uh, you know, my people have always been here, and no one has the right uh, to move us around, even God. And uh, Hashem, you know, but that's not the way it goes. Instead, what happens is that, uh, you know, every nation knocks somebody else out. Is it... This is a question when in history, you understand? The French. The French got there, the barbaric Franks came and knocked out the Romans who knocked out the, uh, the Gauls. So the whole history is a certain God, yo. We have a thing today called international law. International law is an attempt in the last couple hundred years to freeze the current situation. You understand? To freeze the current situation. To give it the veneer of law. Like I said before, under international law, the American people have the right to the land of America. Really? I mean, they wiped out the Indians, as you know. What gives them the right? So international law is to, to take where things are and freeze them. So whenever you have law, if you want to be cynical about it, whoever has uh, gotten ill-gotten gains, now they want this to be uh, guaranteed by right and by law. Which, which raises the question, is there such a thing as actual right? As an abstract, actual law. Pure law is abstract. The general message you get from the Chumash is, no. You know, God runs the world, and so-so, you know, like you say in Kina Chumar, you know, he he moves, he plays with it, he doesn't play with it. And indeed, um, if in the history business, one of the cool things you always see is the changing map of Europe, for example. And, uh, you know, the map's always changing. And what was considered, you know, somebody's territory for a long, long time, Events happen and they aren't. I'm just talking about, I'm doing a podcast on Lithuania and the Jews. You know, the borders of Lithuania change all the time. It used to rule all of Eastern Europe and now it's a small territory. And then Poland and these other places. The current Poland is really occupying Germany, you know, the, the, the East Prussia and Silesia. 
not part of Poland. Because Stalin decided to do it at the end of the war. Is it pure Polish territory? Well, it is now. You know, they kicked out the Germans. They dispossessed them. But, you know, politics is such that one day the Germans may come back. And uh, it, it is within this, within this context that we who read the Chumash view all the politics of the Middle East and these other countries and claims of international law and the United Nations and all the rest of it. Um, all these broad statements are appealed to and abstractions are appealed to, but at the end of the day, there's a certain Chagad Yoh, and Yerbon Shalom's running it and has some kind of a plan, you know, connected with the Mashiach and all the rest of it. Um, you can kind of see that, because any attempt to impose genuine stability on the international situation never works. There have been many, many attempts to do so, and I'm not saying it's the wrong idea to attempt it, but if you have a sense of, of uh, perspective, you know, all attempts are, are, are doomed to failure. You see? And uh, on the other hand, we use these slogans as political tools. So as I said, if you're living in America, these other places, you know, they're all attacking Israel all the time on the basis of appeal to international law, to dispossession of the indigenous and all these other areas, all these other ideas. But they're just tactical claims. Uh, once I got it, I don't want to hear any claim against me. You know, that, that's how people naturally are. So I think it's very interesting to consider these matters, especially when it comes to Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is when the Jews mourn their dispossession. We used to have Eretz Yisrael, and then we're kicked out. So uh, it's all about the history of dispossession and, and the expected repossession. Uh, meaning the Tisha B'Av is a standing uh, claim that uh, you don't have the right to kick us out. We're going to come back. Uh, but that goes a lot of different ways. So I think Pasha Dwarm is extremely interesting in the context of the nine days. It always comes out and raises these uh, funny issues. And uh, isn't it, in the end, is it in this week's Pasha where he talks about, you know, the different uh, names that are given, maybe that's next week, you know, uh, the Har Hermon and all these other places, uh, you know, this country calls it this and that country calls it that. And, uh, yeah, they, they, in this week's Parsha, he says, uh, where is it? That, uh, you know, in Har- what you and I call Hermon was called by this name here and by that name there. In Israel, there's a war name, a naming war, I mean. You know, do you call it Shechem? Do you call it Nablus? Do you call it Yerushalayim? Do you call it this? Do you call it that? Each one wants to impose its name, and uh, therefore it's um, a possession on um, on a piece of land. And uh, that kind of indicates that these fights that we are living through now in the Middle East and elsewhere are kind of existential, never going to go away. And uh, it's not uh, optimistic, but it's realistic. And uh, when you have a problem that's not going to go away, then the, the, the shot is to go figure out how, how to make it work. You see? That's how do you manage it? And we are in the business, you and I, for better or worse, because this is the uh, uh, job and thrust in our generation, uh, to manage the Gaulish. You know, to manage the Jewish situation in the Gaulish. Sometimes do a little better, sometimes do worse. Um, but but let's not fail to acknowledge that this is the task and the challenge of our generation. Anyway, that's just a few ideas. And um, I hope you have a good job.
for sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.